And Mr. Richard Young, we are both here this evening, uh, here to talk to you again about British wrestling. We've got a fantastic guest. Good evening, Steve Knight. How are you? I'm all right, Richard Young. How is yourself? Yeah, we're all right. It's um, we, I've been working on nights this week, so uh, my body clock is still adjusting. But lockdown, well, lockdown is just lockdown now. We just got to get used to it. We've got to bag on, and uh, we've done some great numbers on the podcast so far, haven't we, Steve? So we're uh, so we're really pleased with, and thank you for everybody for tuning in. Uh, actually, I've I've told you a lie. Okay, I'm shit. I'm shit. I'm shit. I, I, yeah, I'm not good. I, you, you asked how I was. And I gave the standard response of "I'm all right, Richard." How Very British response, I, isn't it? Very yeah, British yeah, response. Actually, yeah, actually, I'm 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 actually a bit shit to be honest with you. Uh, my back is absolutely killing me. I'm trapped in an house with two young children that are destroying my mental well-being. Um, my back is screaming at me from having two children all the time, and um, I'm in a foul mood. So I'm looking forward to doing this tonight. So I just be honest. There you go, Richard. I am. Shit. What about yourself, Richard? No, I, I'm actually all right, but... Um, oh, you bastard. You yeah, bastard. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if anyone didn't want to wear that, but I'm, I'm trying to be positive if we can. But that's fine, Steve, because you know what? More people need to be honest during this lockdown. If you are having a shit day, it's fine. If you are locked indoors with your kids and you're not enjoying yourself, it's okay. Because we all feel it at time to time, don't we? We all feel it, so it's okay. If you're having a poor day, if your kids are doing your head in, this is why we're here, to give you a little bit, an hour of your time away where you put your headphones in, go outside, go for a walk, do whatever you do listening to this podcast. If we give you that bit of a break, that's what we're here for. I love my kids more than anything in the world, but they are doing my head in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, and it's not the kids' fault. We'd like to point this out at this time. Oh, it, not it's, the kids it's not the kids' fault. They, 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 they don't know what's going on. What the hell must they be thinking, bless them? Yeah, why? You know, I don't think kids ever think they'd be missing school, but I think the majority of children are missing school right now. My little boy is absolutely really missing his mates, badly missing his mates. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a sad time, and I'm hoping. I was watching a video today, a classic song, Richard, Go West, King of Wishful oh, Thinking. Tune, and it's the uh, What a tune. What a tune. And it's at the Rewind concert a few years ago, and it's like 100,000 people singing along. And I just wonder, will will we ever get back to 100,000 people all together yeah, again? Crazy, isn't it? It's, it's, it's going to change the entertainment industry, the sports industry, all them kind of things. I, I, I really don't – I don't know. It's so bizarre to think. I, can't, I honestly can't think of – anything ever taking place ever again right now. And I know it will, and I know it will, but it, it's very hard to think about it. It's very hard to envision it right now. I think the only way we'll ever get 100,000 people back together again is if I announce a comeback. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll tell you what, we'll put it out there now. We'll put a just giving out, and if yeah. we can raise £100,000 um, in the next week, okay, yeah. in the next week, we promise that when this is all over, when COVID-19 finishes, Steve Knight will make a comeback. He will come to your town. He will come to your house if you want him to. If we can raise a hundred grand, Steve Knight will come out of retirement. I'll make a return. I'll drag the suit out from upstairs 
and it'll look dreadful. It won't fit very well. I'll have to borrow some boots from somebody and I'll do less than I did before, which is nothing anyway, but I'll do it, Richard. I'll do it for the fans. I'll do it for the rock. Man of the people. There you go. That's I the have one. always I've always thought to myself, Steve Knight, man of the people. Uh, and we, <sighs> we will make we will make this happen. Um so we have got a Nigerian bank account, so if you want to send money directly to it, so we don't have to pay any just given fees, that is fine. But let's make this happen. Bring back the night. If Sergeant Tom Moore can do it. No, Captain. Sorry, Captain Tom oh, Moore. Oh, yeah, can yeah. Do it. Oh, Colonel now, isn't he? He got all great. Oh, has he Colonel. been promoted? Has he been promoted? Has he been promoted? Yeah. Oh, amazing. But, amazing. He's not, but he's not the real Colonel, is he? Because we all know who the real Colonel is Colonel Adnan. That is the real Colonel. <laughs> He's still on the go, bless him. He's, he's still about, I believe. Well, he's not the Iron Sheik. No, well, they're, they're different people. They're different people, um, yeah. despite speculation, because one is from Iraq and one is from Iran, obviously, and that's the difference. Um, not in the WWE or yeah. WWF at the time. There is everything's everything's you know it's it's like a wrestle verse. Everything's different at different times. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, it's like Ross Jordan who we had on last week. He's apparently from India, apparently, in, in the world of yeah. wrestling. He's never been in his yeah. life. There you go. Well, it's like the old days of world of sport, isn't it? You know, all the lads from Leeds and London and everything, they were all from really tropical places. Jamaica, yes. George, you know, he was from Leeds. <laughs> uh, you know, there was, you know, everywhere, everywhere. The, the lads <laughs> the lads were from everywhere, everywhere. You know, if, if you were black or, you know, you were Asian, wherever you could be traced to 100 years previous, that's where you were from. The thing is, as well, with this, is that it's not even like this is a thing of the past. They had Kofi Kingston doing a Jamaican accent only about five, six years ago, didn't they? Yeah. yeah he's, he's, he's from he, the middle of America. Yeah, it'll always be the case. Wherever you were from, that will be traced back to. If you listen to the uh, interview, I think it's episode four uh, that we've got on with Johnny Kincaid. We speak about that a little bit. Um, racism was running rife on World of Sport uh, back in the day. But it wasn't really racism at the time because... It would just be seen as racism now because yes. the whole of TV then, you know, you had Bernard Manning on TV and things. It was just a, a different time, a completely different time. Yeah, it's, it, I think it put, just saying that somebody's from Jamaica isn't really racism. Is it, is, a, is it a stereotype? Yes, a massive stereotype. I wouldn't say it was flat out racism, though. I think that's a bit. Maybe now, maybe dressing Tony Atlas up as Saba Simba. That might be considered a little bit inappropriate if you're looking back you in, 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 you in hindsight. Yeah. Um, but certainly not, you know, Jamaica George. It's just, you know, <laughs> it's what it is, isn't it? You know, it, it's, it's, no, it's no different from a white man from London being builders from Glasgow or something, is it? It's no kind of, well, know, point not a no, Scottish accent. Uh, there was a lot. A lot of wrestlers used to build themselves from Scotland. Ian McGregor, you know, he, he yeah. was a British wrestler. He built himself from Scotland. He wasn't remotely Scottish. No, uh, but I all. think it, it just uh, it just gave you a bit of heat. If you were from England and you built yourself being from Scotland, it got you heat for some well, reason because we hate the Scottish. Yes, absolutely. Apparently, well, apparently, apparently, we do. We we, we we never, of course, exploited that on any of our shows at all, did we? With England versus Scotland matches, never, never, never once, never, never once, never. It's not on YouTube. You can't prove it. So if you want to talk to us about kayfabe wrestling locations, then please obviously find us on socials. We are on Twitter, at Seconds Away Pod. That is at Seconds Away Pod on Twitter. And on Facebook, you can find us, if you just type the name of the podcast in, it's Seconds Away, it's nighttime, you will find us. Now, 
we have got some interesting news, haven't we? Some good news, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're not going to re- fully reveal this week what is happening, but we are joining a network, a network yeah. of other, a, a network of kind of other wrestling podcasts, but also a network for a wrestling company that a few of you might know. Uh, they've got they've got a big reputation. They're going into the world of podcasts, and we are joining them. But more, we've already be- been asked, haven't we? Already, just after seven episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, t- only three new ones, really. Yeah, three oh, new ones. Yeah, that's true. Ones. Yeah, yeah, three uh, new ones. Yeah. So um, we're ex- very excited um, to give you that news. I think we might be able to give you it next week. Fingers crossed, and um, we will talk about it then. It's exciting stuff. Definitely exciting Very stuff. It's exciting. Gonna, it's, uh, I think it's really going to kick things off with this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And as well, obviously, please, and I know that obviously a lot of people will download kind of episodes as they come, but please subscribe. Absolutely. It just makes life a lot easier. As soon as you hit that subscribe button on whatever kind of podcast medium you use, whether it be Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, any of them, guys, if you hit subscribe, as soon as the new podcast hits, you will get a notification and you can download it. Dead, dead easy. And as well, write us a review. Get us a review in on iTunes. It helps us in the algorithm. It helps us get up the charts and spreads the word for this tiny little no-budget podcast. So, question of the week this week. So, uh, obviously, Steve, as we talked about last week, we talked about the holiday camps, uh, has wrestled all over the UK. North, South, East, West, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. So, what I want to know is... Where are the best venues to wrestle at? Where are the nicest venues, the best facilities, but more importantly, the best crowds? Ooh, hey, okay. Uh, interesting question, a good question. And I think this is to be broken up into different time periods. That's, okay. that's probably the best thing to do because um, there's the kayfabe era and there's the post-kayfabe era. Yes. Um, because the kayfabe era for me was the, the best era. Uh, because you had crowds that um, wanted to kill you, literally. They they wanted to stab you, which we I had. Um, uh, they they wanted to genuinely. <laughs> they put cigarette outs on you, you know, cigarette out on you and things. Uh, when we spoke to Roy Knight, episode four, I think that was or five, um, he spoke about his dad getting stabbed and things like that at Norwich Corn Exchange. Uh, that was a tremendous venue. Um, but I mean, you literally put your life in your own hands. Uh, wrestling at the Norwich Corn Exchange. A lot of travellers there, uh, 40 or 50 travellers in the crowd. Correct. And again, if you go back and listen to the Marty Jones episode, there's a tremendous story about Marty pulling someone's eyeball out at the Norwich Corn Exchange. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, unbelievable. So that was a rough venue, but a, also a great place to wrestle because they believed everything they were watching. And that's a whole different ball game from entertaining a crowd that um, is there for an evening's entertainment. Um, Because the other crowd are there for an evening's entertainment, but they also are there to um, get involved in a different kind of way. If you ever go back and watch um, NWA from 85, 86 with the Rock and Roll Express, just listen to the crowd screaming and things like that. It's a constant noise all the way through the show. And now I think it's just up and down noise of ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, he's done this, ah, he's done yes, that. Yes, I, I, um, I'm not a fan of chanting. No, no, and I, I we didn't have, have that before. Uh, but going on to the, the, the venues in the past, uh, Cleethorpe's Memorial Hall, 
Um, and Cleethorpes in general at different venues, you always had great crowds in Cleethorpes. Always really, really good Cleethorpes. Um, Croydon, Fairfield Halls, always. I, did, I only did there, in fairness, um, three or four times. Um, and that was a great, great venue as well. Um, where else? I'm trying to think of the great venues. Um, Morecambe Dome um, in either time period. I did that um, in the mid-90s um, and it was tremendous. And then, of course, that was virtually my um, home arena, should I say, um, in the 2000s. I did that a lot as well, the Morecambe Dome. Yeah, let's talk uh, about was that. also a brilliant place. I've had, we've had a lot of fun there. We have, yeah. Let's talk about the Morecambe Dome because it's a venue that we can both kind of relate to. Um, we both worked there for a prolonged period of time in, in different guises, mainly for the FWA, um, but also for its kind of its branch off promotion, so to speak, which is promoted by a gentleman by many might know, Greg Lambert. Yeah, so uh, when the FWA started back up, I started working for the FWA and uh, I went along and uh, did a show for FWA and that's the uh, second time I'd met Greg Lambert and we kind of get along like house on fire. We had the same um, kind of ideas of what wrestling should be and what it shouldn't be. Uh, and Greg really wanted to use me on his shows, uh, and this kind of progressed. So once Greg got a hold of running the FWA and then later on the XWA, he kind of used me as his top guy, effectively. Uh, and we had uh, a whole bunch of fun um, at the Morecambe Dome. Um, and I mean, we literally turned that crowd back into a kayfabe crowd at one point. I remember yeah. winning a Rumble there one time, Um and it was uh, the, I mean, the you know, a finish as old as as old as time, where they didn't see me get eliminated, and I sneaked back in and eliminated the guy, and, and they slam. were literally, yeah, that's right, and they were literally, the the whole ring was just covered in cans and rubbish, and they were trying to kill me, yeah, and, and, me, and me like, as well because I was the referee that never spotted it. And because oh, of that, right, was you? Okay. Yes, I was. And and because I got I ended up getting a impromptu uh, Stone Cold Stunner from uh, Sam Slam. Oh, really? I did. <laughs> you, I, had, you had another impromptu moment there at one time. Do you remember yeah. that one? Yes, I do, very fondly. Um, but So basically, I was refereeing a match between Johnny Storm and Colt Cabana, two kind of, you know, two people in the arguably in the prime of their careers at that point in time. Um, fun match. Everything was going swimmingly. I'd refereed them before, so I knew the match like the back of my hand. Um, and next thing I know, I just kind of feel air in my bottom. And I hear a chant from the front row. A, a gentleman on the front goes, Hey, ref, we can see your ass." And my trousers split massive, not just split, completely ripped <laughs> in half. I was mortified, absolutely mortified. Not mortified in the fact that I was embarrassed, but mortified because ultimately that what happened to me takes away from the match because everyone's then looking. And that was a TV. That was a TV show for the the wrestling channel as well, wasn't it? Yeah, so they couldn't put the match on TV because of what had happened. Oh, really? No, they didn't put they didn't put it on because because (laughs) because of what happened. They did, uh, and. and I, yeah, it was by far the most. I mean, credit to um, Cabana and Storm, who both just laughed laughed it up and thought it was the funniest thing that they'd seen. In fact, they, my my trousers later went and got raffled off in the raffle. Oh my god, that's one of my favourite uh, matches I had there as well. I wrestled Johnny Storm there, 
Um, unfortunately, like five minutes into the match, the day before I went on holiday, um, I, I smashed all the muscles around my ribs and I was in just utter agony uh, halfway through the match. But I, I had a great match with Johnny Storm there. Really, really enjoyed that. Always great fun wrestling Johnny Storm. Yeah, you had a good uh, match there with uh, Robbie Brookside as well. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I remember that one. Uh, that was a great time. I had, I had some great, great times at the Morecambe Dome and and in Morecambe um, in general. We went we went out one night for my um, stag night uh, in Morecambe. Me, Alex Shane, Paul Travell, Paul Birchall, um, Nikita, who was uh, Katie Lee, or was she? Yes, in WWE, yeah, WWE, she went yeah. on to be. Uh, oh, we had we had some great nights. Uh, one very um, famous, notable one as well. Yeah, it's been talked about if you've listened to Cabana's podcast, which is the Art of Wrestling, a very popular podcast. He talks about it with Doug Williams, uh, who are both there uh, on this occasion. So we st- the story starts, and uh, we'll, both me and Steve will kind of interact on this one. Um, we usually, when we used to go to Morecambe, we used to go in Lancaster, didn't we? So Morecambe and Lancaster are right next door to each other, but they're, they're very different to towns, aren't they? Well, Lancaster's posh. Yeah, and Morecambe's a bit of a shithole. Yes. in fairness, yeah. yeah. And I'm not I'm... saying that to be horrible. That that was my my gimmick, and um, when I used to go to Morecambe, <laughs> I used to say it was a bit of a shithole. But it's genuine, you know. Morecambe is a little bit of a shit, a rundown old seaside town. Yes, um, absolutely. And we we had a show there one night, and we had a show the next day somewhere. Um, so we'd been put up for the night, and it was myself, uh, Doug Williams, Steve Carino. Colt Cabana, Hayde Vanson, James Ty. Uh, was you was you with us? Yeah, I was, yeah. Me, yeah, and you, Doug Williams. And, and Doug. And Doug, yeah. yeah. So we got put went to our hotel room, uh, which was just awful, absolutely awful. And Steve Carino came out and said, Oh my god, look at this. And he had blood all up his walls <laughs> in his hotel room. It was just god awful. He called um, it the murder so, hotel, didn't he? I think murder, he wrote a blog. Murder yeah, he hotel, called it the murder yeah. hotel, yeah. So he decided not to come out, but the rest of us all went out. Um, we would they wouldn't let us in anywhere because we were a large group of lads. Well, the, the, uh, the, we, you missed a, a little bit of a part of a story on, there. Yeah, uh, yeah. When so basically, we, when we were waiting outside of the hotel, so we were waiting outside the hotel for everybody to come out, and Hayde Vanson was with us. And from across the, we talked about racist stories earlier. From across the road, someone from out of nowhere just shouted, uh, "Hayde Vanson." Hey mate, there's no black in Union Jack. That's right. Yeah, not and you're thinking, not, not not nice at all. No, and you're thinking, well, that's a great start to the night. <laughs> so we ended up finding a nightclub, if you can call it that, called Crystal Tees, um, and it was the kind of place that um, your feet stuck to when you walked in. Uh, and they let us in, and we walked up, didn't we? And like I say, there was about six or seven of us. And we went in, and you could just tell the second you walked in, we were, we were going to have trouble when we went in there. Um, and we all ordered drinks, and we sat down, um, and there was people just staring daggers at us the you know the entire time we got in there. And a guy came over and sat next to us. He was obviously off his head on something, um, and he said, um, "You're wankers." <laughs> yeah, and we. And I kind of looked at him and said, sorry? He said, you're wankers. And then Colt Cabana was sort of sat next to us as well. And he said, what does that mean? And I said, oh, 
Colt, don't don't worry. And he was like clueless to it, really. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and then the, the guy said, "What are you doing? In, what are you doing in Morecambe?" And then I knew, and I was like about to stop him saying it, but before I could say anything, Colt leant over to him and said, "We're all restless." <laughs> Oh, it was like it was like a, a torch to the flame on it. <laughs> oh, we're all wrestlers, and the guy says, "You're all what? We're all wrestlers." And it was like, "Oh my god, here we go." No, you're not. You're all wankers. It was like, "Oh, here we go. Oh, this is dreadful. This is this is dreadful." So the guy sort of stopped talking, and then I could see him like giving instructions to other guys in this nightclub. So we slowly started getting surrounded by lots of people. And I was saying to these the other guys on the table, right, this is about to kick off. Prepare yourself. So I was watching who was grabbing what, if these guys were getting glasses or anything. And it turned out that their problem was with Hayd Vanson because he had dark skin. That was their problem. But this was then inflamed because Colt Cabana had told them we were wrestlers. Uh, go on, I'll let you have the rest of this. <laughs> yeah, so basically... I, I remember like we were all sat having a drink and you you kept going, I think we should leave now. I think we should leave now. And, and we were going, no, no, everything's fine. Now, we haven't spoke about this, but Steve for many, many years has also worked as a DJ. Now, Steve knows he has a good grasp of being the sober person in the room. He has a good grasp of when things are not what they seem. Um, so he's telling everybody, look, I think, I think something's going to happen here. And the next thing you know, these lads obviously go off. Uh, they that I think we missed out as well. They sent they sent a couple of girls over as well, didn't they? Yes. So the lasses yes. so the, so the last, so the come over and start chatting, and that's where the where a wrestler line comes from because obviously these cult thinks that these girls are coming to chat us up. They think that you know, and it wasn't the case at all. They were part of you know part of the big picture. So next thing you know, a chair just flies over. It literally, it literally just flies over the top of James Ty's head and lands bang in the middle of the table. And, and we're then, off. And we're off. We're off. And we're off. Western style brawl ensues. <laughs> oh, it was crazy. It was absolute madness. I think I had I had one of them around the throat against this table. Doug had one of them. James Ty, who's like the quietest, nicest lad in the world, he had one of them around his neck, lifted up against the against his table. I couldn't see what anybody else was doing. No, I think the rest of them flee. To be fair, I think Cabana didn't know what was didn't know what was going on. Um, I, I think Hayd kind of went out. I remember because it was stairs to get down the nightclub. And yeah, I remember it was. Yeah. We all came out, and one of the party was outside because they'd all been yeah. kicked, they'd all been kicked out. But he was like, "You can He was going to the bouncer. You've got to let me back in because you can't leave me alone with this lot. They're going to kill me." So, so suddenly, it became like the tables had turned, and it was what he was thinking. Oh my god! Like I'm on my own against all these wrestlers. Well, obviously, he, he was let go, and we, nothing happened. We didn't was, do anything. We didn't touch it. We weren't. We wasn't interested at all. No, no, it no. was uh, just we wanted to kebab, kebab and, and and go home. We just we point. just wanted a kebab. Go back to the murder hotel and get to, get to the show the next day. But yeah, it's. Uh, I think I think everybody from Doug to Cabana and everybody has told a, their own version because obviously everyone saw a different version of that. But uh, yeah, that was that was a, a it's the kind of thing you remember as a great night, isn't it? it was, oh, it was, absolutely, uh, yeah, great fun. I think we went somewhere after that as well. But uh, yeah, Morecambe, we had some, we had some great fun in Morecambe. We've had some crazy crazy nights out. 
So, uh, st- I'm not interviewing on this week's podcast because, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I've been working nights all week. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get to I'll be scheduled and allowed. But, Steve, please tell us about our guest this week. Yeah, another one of the guys that I used to look up to and watch, uh, Mr. Frank Chick Cullen, who is known in the UK, known in Canada and the US as Robbie Stewart. Um, one of the top guys in the late 70s and early 80s, up there with Danny Collins and everybody else. Uh, just a great grafter, a great wrestler. Um, and he talks about everything from wrestling, the likes of Rocco and Finley, um, talks about his views on Big Daddy, uh, working for Ori Williams, um, Brian Dixon. He's got a brilliant Brian Dixon story, um, which I had to edit some of it out because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> uh, some of it wasn't uh, suitable to tell. Um, and then uh, he's also got some amazing stories because um, – in 1981, uh, he went over to live in Canada for Stampede for the Hearts, and he was over there at the same time as Dynamite um, and David Boy, and he was there for six years. So he's got absolutely amazing stories from Stampede as well. So it was a really, really good interview. Brilliant. Well, everybody, enjoy. Don't forget, again, please subscribe. Please review the service. If you like the podcast, please spread the word. Join us on social medias, Twitter at Seconds Away Pod, and find us on Facebook as well. Just type the name of the podcast in. You will find our page. And ladies and gentlemen, enjoy Steve's interview with Chick Cullen. You've had a, a wonderful, wonderful wrestling life, so uh, there's plenty of to go at anyway. So um, <laughs> anything you're not comfortable with talking about, just say pass on that. No, no, no problem. Uh, as long as you're comfortable with all the answers, because I shoot from the hip and I don't care who I insult or offend. I just say it like it is. That's what I like to hear, so that's absolutely <laughs> perfect. So what were your, um, So where were you born and what year? Yeah, 1960s, Stirling, Scotland. That makes me 60 years old, right? My God, you, you look, you're looking well. We've got the video camera on for this one, so I can actually see my subject. So you, you, you look younger than me, actually. Well, thanks. That wouldn't be fucking hard. I've seen no, you it's not. <laughs> That's a lot of oh, dime Cypress sun has wrinkled you. It's withered it, it you. It has, and a lot of dime bars. So first memories of wrestling? Well, uh, amateur wrestling, actually. Um, I was a 10-year-old. Uh, I was born with asthma. I was born with pneumonia, then it developed into asthma, so I was ill all my life. Uh, wasn't any good at football, never have, never have been, still will never be, rugby, anything like that. So I, I used to go to the youth club and watch guys playing five-a-side football. I'd sit in the wall and watch it. So then uh, I watched uh, behind me one time, I thought, I don't know what that is, they're on a mat. It looks like judo, but they haven't got jackets on. It turned out to be Olympic wrestling, amateur wrestling. So uh, at 10 years old, I was curious. I got involved, I asked questions, and um, that's how I started. And at this point in time, you had zero interest, not been watching professional at all? Yeah, no, not true. I had been a wrestling fan and I'd been to the Albert Hall in Stirling many times as a younger person. And um, uh, my family were into wrestling. So our local hero was a guy called Andy Robin in Stirling. So uh, Max Crabtree would bring whoever was brave enough to come up and go in the ring with Andy Robin. So we saw quite a few of the characters over the years. So ten years old, started amateur wrestling. How did you how did you get involved, or what made you decide to try and get involved with the professional job? Right, uh, I still wasn't hundred percent sure that there was a difference at that point. Um, how naive, eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, by the time I was um, fifteen, um, Oric Williams was running Sterling Arbor Hall regularly, and I used to go along and say, "I'm a wrestler. I'd like to be a wrestler with you." 
and I got the short, sharp, fuck off, you know, like, fuck off, you jock, all this. Like, that was Oric for you, right? But I persevered and I kept going along and um, I was almost turned 16 and I went along one day and he said, oh, it's you again. How old are you, son? I said, I'm 16. All oh, right. You want to be a professional wrestler, eh? I said, yeah. I told him my background with amateur and stuff. He put him in the ring with Carl Jason. Remember Carl? Yeah. yeah. He turned me inside out. <laughs> he turned me inside out because I was a small and skinny guy then and Carl was a very experienced wrestler, which I later found out. Um, so he says, right, okay, well, you'll have to come and live in real North Wales. I went, where the frig is that? You know, so anyway, he, he came and saw my parents that day and uh, said, we'd like to take him. He's keen. And uh, so Oric hadn't even finished talking and my mum had my bags packed. So then that <laughs> felt... So your parents, oh, yeah. your parents were so quite happy with that. I went to live in Rill and um, I said, I lied actually, I'm not 16 until three weeks time. So that was the first public warning I got off him, right? And who were some of your trainers when you got there? Well, at that time it was Crusher Mason was there. Remember Which, Crusher? Yeah, yeah. Um, Chief Billy Whitecloud, they actually, he's actually from um, Puerto Rico, Ramon Ramos. He was there at the time, living in Rill. So, yeah, those two and Oreg were, were coaching me, so I was very lucky to have some good experienced guys. And then within six weeks of that, we uh, started to tour Spain and we're in bull rings, wrestling in bull rings for about three months. Uh, oh, putting so. the ring up, the ring down every day. And the quicker I could get the ring up, the quicker Crusher and Ramon were getting the ring and show me stuff. So I was very lucky because there was no training schools back then. No, this is that's the, this is the bit that fascinates me. This is this is the, the, the bit I... Yeah. yeah. Absolutely marvellous. So who was on the team when you first started? Oh, who was on the team? Um, George Burgess, Jamaica kid. Oh, did, yeah. Uh, Oreg was big into the girls then, so there was uh, Rusty Blair and Cherokee Princess, that's Carol Taylor and um, Gloria. Um, Crusher and, gosh, whoever they could get to wrestle Crusher. You know, Steve Taylor was in the team then. and So that was a team, basically, for out, in, uh, out in Spain, yeah. It was, it, it was quite an experience. And did you come across any dickheads when you first started the job? Anybody mistreat you at all? Um, there's a few people who would kind of pull you around and kind of push and pull you just to see how you responded most of the time, really. But uh, no, I was treated with respect because I gave respect, I believe. And uh, well, I've had a couple of mishaps here and there along the, along the years, but uh, <laughs> um, pretty much it was all a respect thing Oric taught as well uh, not just about in-ring uh, etiquette but how to behave outside it too so this would have been 1976 when you started this then right, yeah. so yeah. Uh, how long was you working for Oric for gosh I would say uh, um, uh, four years and then I went to work for uh, Brian after that and then soon after going to work for Brian I went to Calgary Right, this is the, the next question. So how did, was we'll go to Brian first. So obviously, uh, was Oregon Brian on good terms for you to go and work yeah, there? Oh, yeah. oh, yes, they were. You know, like um, uh, Brian will admit and Oreg would tell you, had he still been alive, that uh, Oreg taught Brian everything he knows about the business and, Oreg, and Brian would admit to that, right? So, uh, yeah, they were very close. And um, but Oreg always pulled um, the old man shit on him, you know, like I know best and stuff. So... Brian was pretty much um, bent knee to whenever Oreg. It was Brian, Oreg, sorry, it was Oreg that said, you know, you, you should go and work for Dixon. He's a lot busier and got a lot bigger shows and a lot more talent on his shows and it will help you develop. 
So when you went over to Brian, at this point, did he have um, the top guys like Rocco and people no. like that? Were they still over no. for, for Max? Yes, they were, yeah. Um, the first one to come over, if I recall, um, might have been Tony Sinclair. Uh-huh. I remember totally. Uh, yeah, and then um, Rocco and Saint and Jim Brakes, they all followed pretty quickly, you know. But back in that day, like it was, uh, as I say, it was that would be... Uh, um, 1980 by then. Uh, Brian's crew were like uh, Danny Lynch, dangerous Danny Lynch, Crusher, uh, Johnny Kincaid, yep. Hans Stryger, um, Steve Young, who as the modern guys will know as Skull Murphy, right? So, okay, yeah. oh yeah, okay. And that's a good working crew. Tug Wilson, they were all handy guys, you know. Uh, so Calgary, you mentioned that mm-hmm. somewhere you've had a love affair with kind of ever since. How did that come about? Um, well, I, um, I I asked to go to Calgary. I spoke to um, Adrian Street was going first and foremost, and I knew David Boy and Dynamite had gone just a year or so before me. So I spoke to Bruce Hart on the phone, and he said, "I'm due in Britain next month, and I'll come and see you work and stuff." And he did. He came and saw me, and they said, "Yeah, you should come and work with us," and 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 so on and um you should come at the same time as adrian street and that's exactly what i did so it was initially for a three-month contract and uh, at the end of the three months i uh, i got on great i had some great talent there some good hard workers you know including dynamite and davy and uh, all the hard boys all worked like dynamite and davy because that's that was what they wanted right they all they were all around the similar size all around the junior heavyweight um bracket and so yeah Tom was a perfect foil for them. He went as a baby face first, but they realised how could they be baby faces when he was extremely good as a baby face, so they turned him heel, right? So that make them look better. Which is what they did with me in the end too. So yeah, that was uh, 1980 and uh, at the end of the three months, as I was saying, so I said, okay, nice to see you guys and thanks for everything and I brought a couple of cases of beer in the dressing room. Oh, thanks for the beer. Oh, where are you going? You're going to a different territory. I said, no, I'm going home. Well, why are you going home? My three months is up. I mean, fuck, nobody leaves here. Yeah. So I stayed for three years. Oh, well, the first time you stayed for three years? Yes, yeah. Wow. Okay, so let's talk about Stampede, because it's uh, before I, I got into wrestling myself, it was something I used to try and get tapes on, and mm-hmm. I know a, a, a lot of the British lads went over there. So yeah. the first person I want to talk to you about, of course, is Tom Billington, Dynamite yeah. Kid. Yeah. Um, Let's have an honest opinion here at Dynamite. Obviously, fantastic, maybe the best wrestler of all time. Um, however, um, if you were to read lots of things about Dynamite, you would possibly believe he was the worst person of all time. Uh, what's your opinion? He was by far not the worst person. He was a, a, a serious prankster, uh, sometimes uh, verging on the uh, encroaching on dangerous shit that he did. Um, and he was, uh, he wasn't a bully in the ring, but he was solid. He hit and he moved fast and he expected the same in return. So a bully would pick on a weak person and, and exploit them. Uh, he was not that. He would pick on the biggest guy and give him a hard time expecting it in return. Nothing but respect for Tommy. Um, way back then and when he came to Britain at the, the twilight of his career, um, not definitely not the worst person. He was a good guy. Funny, yeah. funny, funny guy. It's interesting because every every wrestler that I speak to, and I spoke to Danny and things, they all say the same thing. And yeah. I think there's a real um, issue online if you read about him. Uh, I don't think people really know the real him. 
<clears throat> no, no, they don't. And he was a very private person uh, outside the ring. Uh, they kind of kept themselves to themselves. Him and Wayne Hart owned the owned a house, and uh, they kind of they never came out the house to go except to go to the gym and to wrestling, and that was it. You know, they weren't they didn't frequent bars and pubs and stuff and clubs. So uh, a lot of people didn't know about them, right? And plus, they were traveling a lot to Japan, where there wasn't much of a social life there for them. It was all graft, right? Um, but no. Uh, the people who would bitch about Tommy, I'd say, are the people who crossed his path uh, in a negative way. Uh, I just mentioned one the other day, actually. There was a, a documentary on about um, David Schultz. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm sure everyone will have heard of him, the famous David Schultz who slapped the television uh, reporter. Um, David was a tough son of a bitch, I tell you. He was a tough, tough man. And... Uh, by and large, in, in Calgary, the dressing rooms were uh, baby faces one side, heels on the other with the toilets and sinks in between. But you were always chatting through. You weren't, it wasn't natural for you to walk across and speak to them. You, you talked through the gap. Kayfabe was kayfabe, right? Um, so Schultz always sat in his same seat and Dynamite always sat in his same seat. Duke Myers, Kerry Brown, Gamma Singh and all the guys had their own places. Uh, I can't remember what was said, but um, Schultz upset Dynamite. He said something and then Tommy, like, what the fuck, you know, that's how we used to talk. He still spoke in America for years, and he still smoked like he just came out of Wigan the day before. And um, Schultz went to stand up. He was going to go for Tommy. Before Schultz straightened his legs, Tommy was across there and gave him a short fucking right hand right to the jaw. Schultz never, ever got out of that chair. <laughs> he put Schultz back on his ass, like, and um, from that day forward, Schultz was quiet because he was an extremely bad bully. If he could get away with it, he would. Um, yeah, dynamite um, showed him like you know I might be small, but I'm fucking really am dynamite, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, you were you were the same age as all these guys as well. Uh, yeah. What about what about yeah. Davy boy? Davy's a bit younger. Davy would be about fifty-seven, fifty-eight. Oh, I think had he still been alive? Yeah, was, Davy was, was about three years younger than me. I think. What was he like? He was good. Davy was a bit. He was quiet and it was a bit. Dynamite was his cousin, but he called him fucking Simple Simon, right? He says he was daft, right? But he was... I just want to be big and strong. Big and strong, that's all the way to be, right? But he, David was a great guy, a great character, a hard, hard grafter, hard worker in the gym, and um, produced a really, really nice family with Diana, you know, Georgia and Harry. Yeah, he was a good friend of mine, David. And obviously, you'd have been around Heart House and those kind of places. Yeah, the dungeon, the Heart House, all that, you know. And uh, at that time, I, I was criticised, not heavily, but for not taking steroids. Eh? I wasn't interested. I'd go to the gym. I was always in good shape. I was fit and stuff, but I, I wouldn't t- touch steroids. I just was not into it. Um, when I left, just before the WWE came calling, um, they said, well, you could have been there. You could have been one of these guys. I went, I don't think so, but... Um, they had a Scotsman in Piper at the time. They wouldn't want another Scotsman at that time. And they wouldn't want somebody as small as me because I was, you know, more slender than the Dynamites and the Davies and the, and the, the, the Gamma Sings and the, the Bret Hart at the time, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I I didn't miss it. I mean, I didn't say, like, God damn, you know, I, I wish I'd been there still and maybe I got the opportunity. I don't think that way at all. I loved the time I had in Calgary and... Uh, Stampede Wrestling, and I was very proud that I was there at the time when they'd done the best ever business that they were doing, you know. 
Yeah. It was on fire at the time. It was the hottest territory at the time. When you think about the people that passed through there, Hogan, um, uh, Undertaker all passed through there under different guises. Um, the Rock used to live there, he used to live in Calgary with the Hearts. He trained with the Calgary Stampeders and kind of made it to the second or the third line of the defence or something like that. Uh, so him and Dean Hart, who's no longer with us, um, Dean used to live in the winter in Hawaii with uh, with Dwayne Johnson and his family. And then in the summer, Dwayne would come up with Dean to Calgary and live in the Hart house. Now, the, the trips apparently in Calgary were something else as well. <laughs> any, any, any memories of gigantic oh, trips? Oh, my God, every day. It was a nightmare, you know, and very short summers here. Uh, you'd probably look at three months of good weather here. But when it's hot, it's hot. But when it's cold, geez, it could be as low as minus 40. Yeah, we've been off the road a few times. Touch wood, I never uh, got hurt. I drove a lot of the time because the guys were always either drunk or stoned. Or so I said, hey, I'll drive this bus, you know. And there I was, 17 years old, driving a Greyhound, uh, 19 years old, driving a Greyhound bus down the road, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you drove one of these before? Oh, yeah, loads of times. Yeah. <laughs> a few more. You had a lot of um, fellow British guys that came over at the, probably the same time you were there as well. Yeah, uh, so a good time uh, to mention two of them uh, because you asked me about any high spots on the road. Um, Dave Taylor and Steve Taylor, both fantastic grafters, um, but... As brothers, they weren't very close. They weren't very friendly. They really spoke to each other. Go, all right, yeah, you're all right, yeah. And they carry on and pass each other, right? So one, <laughs> one time we got down the road and a Cuban assassin, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, the real Cuban assassin, Angelo. We sat in the back, <clears throat> uh, minus 40 outside. He's got a, a wife beater, they call it, like this. And he's always got a bottle of Bacardi, but just takes the top off and throws the top away because he's going to drink that before he gets home. And Regina was a 12-hour drive home, right, a 10-hour drive. And uh, we went off the road once. Bruce was driving, blind as a bat. Uh, Steve Taylor had been sitting on the second row of seats, and Dave Taylor was on the fifth row of seats, and Cuban was on the last seat, seat row six at the back of this big minibus thing. The time the bus came to a standstill on the ditch, and Steve and Dave were in the back seat holding on to each other, <laughs> cuddling <laughs> each other. <laughs> they probably said, I miss, I'm sorry I didn't speak to you all these years. Oh, yeah, me too. I'm sorry. <laughs> But, and, and it all happened in a uh, like few nanoseconds, you know what I mean? So like Dave went, and Steve went from like that row right to the back to his brother because they were shitting themselves. We all were, we were all scared, right? You're talking about they go down the ditch here and there's like 20 feet of snow and the, the bus, many buses embedded into it, right? God, I mean, those massive trips, I know that uh, Haystacks went out there for a while. He couldn't have yeah. enjoyed, he couldn't have enjoyed that. No, definitely not, especially in summer, but at least the, the vans had AC right air conditioning, but uh um, and they were pretty uh, good minibuses, good quality at the time I was there. They also had a Greyhound bus, uh, which was good because I had a bathroom. We'd go into BC, Vancouver on that at times when it was working, right? Um, some of the guys just took their cars and they shared the gas money between themselves. But um, yeah, Haystacks was in the van with the boys at the heels and that. And uh, that's when Tommy pranked the life from how he never died on that trip. I don't know. God, tell us, tell us well, a story. Well, well, just the stuff like he just kept. Tommy was bad for uh, buying a twenty-four pack, but he'd only drink for him himself. He'd give the other twenty away, but it's what he'd put in the bottles before yeah. they gave them to the guys. Yeah. Right? You know, uppers, downers, in between us, laxatives, everything. It was, it was just all a big bit of fun to Tommy, right? And uh, haystacks, where he, although uh, Tommy and looked after him big time, and haystacks um, was. Uh, you know, indebted to Tommy and I looked after Tommy and loved Tommy. 
he'd still, like, he knew it was Tommy that was doing it, but he'd want to blame other people, you know. The worst ever time was uh, in Regina. Um, Haysax needed to go to the toilet because um, Dynamite had X-lax them on the way to the show. Oh. So Stax is fucking ready for a crap, right? So he gets again, before he gets in the toilet, Tommy's in before him. And you know that uh, little yellow cans of lighter fuel that you get? Yeah. Uh, Dynamite would spray it all around the toilet stall, the cubicle, right? So the minute Dynamite, <laughs> Stax is in there and drops his trousers, <laughs> big shit comes. Dynamite throws a piece of paper towel over this lit and the whole fucking cubicle was up his head. It was strides around his ankles, like. <laughs> Hilarious. Like, I mean, how dangerous is that? But fucking hell, it was funny. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what's missing now, isn't it? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And, uh, of course, there'd have been a young Chris Benoit while he was in Stampede well, as well. Chris came a few years later, yeah. Chris was still at school when he first started because him and Owen were roughly the same age and, uh, they both started, uh, although Owen had been around pro wrestling all his life, right? And Owen was already a very talented pro wrestler at 15, 14, 15. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about him in a minute. But yeah, Chris came down from Edmonton and uh, he started um, training with us and stuff like that. And uh, he'd get in the ring with me on a Saturday morning. He wanted to learn European style. Dynamite wouldn't teach anybody anything. So it was left to me to teach him European style wrestling. And um, he became, he was a good kid, a good friend. And one of the best grafters that was ever produced, and it's just tragic what happened to him. So he was in Canada for three years the first time, then, of course, in yeah. the 80s, which is when I'd have been kind of first seeing you on yeah. TV at my age. Um, yeah. Did you did you come back for an extended period in the 80s? Yeah, I was back, I was back was and forwards then, right? Because uh, Brian also had the cable television there, Screen Sport at the time. So I was doing a run with Rocco on that, so I was back was and forwards, and... The first time ever, Brian Dixon paid a flight for me, I suppose. But, yeah, he used to pay for me to come backwards and forwards to just to keep this run going with the screen sport with Rocco and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. So, you mentioned Rocco. He's my um, absolute hero, my favourite of all time. How was yeah. um, how was working with Rocco? How was what, sorry? How was working with Rocco? It was uh, 100 miles an hour, and don't blink in case you miss it, but it was so enjoyable. And once I got... Uh, my head round what he does and how he thinks and how he works. It was like, I loved it. It was a night off for me, although it was just like heavy, heavy, heavy duty all the time. It really was, you know. And um, I, I twigged early on in my career, there was the Finlay, the Rocco, the bad guys and all that. And there's no point in trying to be one of these because they're the best at what they do. My job is going to try and be a baby face so that I can help them be better than they are. And I made a good living out of putting the, those guys over and I'm very proud of that. And I had no qualms about that at all job every night for those guys if I had to just to put them over and make the, the show look good and the match look good you know a night off for me was Johnny Saint or Danny Collins that's what a good night off for me was oh, yeah and during this time you were traveling to other countries as well what countries have you been to wrestling uh, I did some in the states uh, in Montana and stuff and uh, um, Washington State um, a lot in Africa for Oric uh, Germany um, for Roland Bach I was there on the Andrew the Giant tour, uh, Hamburg for Lazartes, uh, Sweden, a lot. Of, we did a lot of Sweden for um, Eric Taylor, Steve Taylor's dad, and the Swedish promoter there. Uh, um, I wasn't big on the big tournaments in Germany. I wasn't big enough at the time. A lot of the thing was, uh, a lot of the, the shows and a lot of the tours then were um, pretty much uh, for bigger men. It wasn't until Dynamite went to Canada that 
the business changed and it became uh, pretty much a junior heavyweight were equal then to the heavyweight guys. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, Japan, I never went. Uh, I got invited twice. Um, I was asked to pay my own airfare both times and I refused and I wouldn't pay to go anywhere. It's not my cup of tea. It's not like I needed the experience at the time and it's not like a, I wanted it for the glory to say I was in Japan. I was just thinking about how much it was going to cost me to get there and how much was I going to make. Uh, it's probably less than what it cost me to get there and get home. Yeah. So, yeah. No. And I know so many people that didn't go, oh, I've done Japan. I went, oh, I know you have, yeah. Expensive trip for you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Did you even get paid, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Because after uh, all, um, all Japan and New Japan, there was a lot of little companies opened up, just like it has in Britain. Yeah. And they're still this day and they're like piss ball promotions you know but people say oh i've done japan i've toured japan yeah good luck to you well i know that um in the 90s when i when i started that michinoku pro was a real popular one that a lot of guys were going off to i don't i don't know the financials of it but um mm-hmm. i think it was stevie J that's first started you remember stevie J? I do, yeah. I remember him, yeah. yeah. I think he was the one that, I think he was the first guy that kind of went. Um, and I, I remember uh, we were somewhere one night and Finley gave him a real good pasting because he paid his own fare there. Yeah. I yep. remember that. Yeah, I think I think only Doug uh, Williams was the only guy to for them to pay his wages, I think, his, his fare. Yeah. The rest, I believe, paid their own airfare. Yeah, because he was, he was uh, old. I've spoke to a few of them since and, you know, the... I hear the conversation and maybe talking indirectly to somebody else in the dressing room. I go, hey, hang on, that's a lot of fucking cocksucker, man. I said, you, you paid your own fare. You didn't make a penny. I said, you probably had to mortgage your fucking car to get there, you know. I said, don't bullshit these guys and tell them that it's, you got paid and all that. That's nonsense. Wow. Yeah. Now, during the 80s, when you were on there with uh, Finley, Rocco, etc., obviously the big the big show was um, the big guys, Daddy, Stax, and things like that. What yeah. was your what was your opinion on that? Well, you know, they were the draws, whether we liked it or not. I mean, just have to look at his stacks on a post, and you think, geez, I'll go and see this guy. I felt sorry for Shirley, actually. It wasn't what he was doing wasn't his doing. That was Max making him do that. You know, uh, Shirley was actually a decent guy, you know, deep down. Um, yeah, it took the piss out of the business a lot. It killed the business in some ways, but at the same time, he was the only one that was putting bombs on seats at the time. So you can't really criticise him, you know. Um, and when the two of them were together, yeah, it was money. The halls were packed, so I got no criticism at all for them. And um, uh, if anything, respect for uh, giving me a place on the show that you put the bombs on the seats for. And obviously, you work for Max, yeah? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I worked for Max. Uh, I worked for Max at uh, very, very beginning. In fact, Max actually gave me a a, a, a run-in on a show at Kelvin Hall in Glasgow when I was 15 years old, into John Naylor. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John Naylor was beating up uh, Bill Ross, I think it was, or Bill Turner or something. Go on, kid, do a run-in, save the day. And uh, I went in and John John Naylor just fucking probably just head-butted me and punched me and threw me out of the ring or something <laughs> <laughs> I was remember yeah, what, what... Then later on, so Max always knew who I was, and uh, Max knew, loved the fact that I came from Stirling because he made a lot of money in Stirling with Andy Robin and stuff in Scotland in general. Um, so he loved that. Uh, it's him that changed my name to Chick Cullen because he said I reminded him of Chick Purvey, one of the old Scottish wrestlers. Yeah. Um, and then not long after, I think I was with him about three months, and then uh, the Albert Hall they did a uh, did a match with Kilby for the Kilby had been the title holder. 
And uh, Max came in. We were, I remember we were the last match in the season. Now, what, what do you want to do, kid? And I said, whatever you want, Max. I'm here just to work and get paid. And, okay. He said, we haven't got long now. So we're just doing five rounds. I won full finish in five rounds. So he said, you can win. Okay. You can take the belt. Okay. Well, you could have fucking picked Kilby up off the floor. He couldn't believe what he had just heard. You know, he's like, what? She says, who is this guy? He's only been with us a few weeks. And anyway, I did the job, got the belt, and Kilby hardly spoke to me after that. But then we became friends in the end. He used to kind of rough me up about Alan Kilby because a wee bit lighter than him. He thought he kind of very, very clumsy, you know. But no, oh, I was yeah. a match where I just get stuck right into him. <laughs> he didn't like that. But yeah, we became friends in the end. So yeah, Max gave me the, the, the belt. And then three months later, I went back to the opposition because I couldn't handle living in London. Not that I didn't like working for joints. I loved it very much. There's a lot of good guys there. I just didn't like living in London. Yeah, yeah. And it was a time of the Brixton riots. I was scared to go out. Yeah. Was you was you living with um was was Danny there at the time? Danny Collins. No, no. Danny had come in just I think about a year or so after that. I think. Right. Okay. Because I'm Danny was telling me he was living in Brixton as well. So now yeah. so. So obviously during the eighties you did all that, and then in the nineties I met you and you were doing a lot back for Oreg again uh, on mm. the tri- on the tribute shows. Uh, was was you working well, those was you working those full time? Um, I was in the prison service. Ah, okay. For a lot of my wrestling career. And, okay. Uh, so yeah, I was doing the ones I could reach. You know, uh, uh, at that time as tribute, I was doing three or four a week for the tribute shows. Yeah. And with the, what do you think to the tribute shows? Um, well, it's funny the way it happened because uh, I think I did the first one and I right. did a show at the Oval in Bebbington because I remember looking at Johnny South and said, Johnny, you look so much like that guy from LOD. So, uh, yeah. So, anyway, I run a show on my own right in Dixon's backyard, the, the Oval in Bebbington, right at where Brian lived. Brian would never touch it. So, I, uh, I booked it and I put LOD against Haystacks, I think it was. Well, I sold it out in four days. I shit myself. I thought, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> the show went and uh, it was packed and it was great. And only two people said, hey, we, we, we want to complain. What's wrong? That wasn't the real LOD because we know him. We won a competition with the WWE last year. We met him in Manchester. That wasn't him. I said, you're kidding me. Said, <laughs> so. I played dumb, right? Anyway, the next day, the son came on to me. And uh, you're the promoter. I said, well, I'm the guy that was booking the show. Yeah. Well, you know, who is this guy? I said, I don't know. They're suddenly masquerading around Europe as LOD. And I thought I was booking the real guy. And I paid him a lot of money. I said, I'm pissed off. They went, oh, I bet you are. I said, yeah, I am. So <laughs> then the next day in the sun, it was a uh, heading. Was it the real hawk or was it just a fly-by-night? <laughs> <laughs> Ori got pissed off. I think they got pissed off because I filled it. Well, I, I made uh, I missed the I made the big shoulder pads for Johnny South and all that, and got them all done and okay. boots and all the gear and all that, right? And the next day, Ori called me and said, "You have just killed the fucking business. I am ashamed of you." I said, "Well, you know, I did what I did, and um, I regret it." I said, "I don't regret the amount of money made and the amount of money the guys got paid because they got paid better off me than they did off anybody else. It was a one-off show and." Um, yeah, I'll take what comes, don't worry, Oreg. Well, fuck me, a month later, he had Johnny South on every night with that gear on. <laughs> Johnny South has never made so much money. Oreg had never made so much money as he did with the tribute shows. No, he was packed every night, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. 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 Hippocrates, that's what they were. Well, Oreg was a lovely, 
Uh, he had people going, oh, Oreg, I loved him a lot. I loved Oreg. He brought me in the business, and I, I, I owe him a lot. But um, he was a cheap, cheap, nasty fucker. He was a grumpy, nasty old fuck when he wanted to be, and and um, uh, nasty with it, right? He would do something to fuck you up if he could. Yeah. Horrible, horrible. When he was angry and pissed off you, he was not a nice person at all. And I don't mind saying that to anybody that's listening. If you knew him, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about. But as a person, he was funny, but he could be nasty, right? But I still owe him my career. I owe him everything for my career, and I'm yeah. grateful. So you, you've kind of flitted about a lot then, but Orig and then to Max and then to Brian, and then you've kind of gone back to places. What about Brian? What's your relationship with Brian been like over the years? Um, mixed. <laughs> I got on great with Brian when I first started. Then I, I was considered an Orig's man, and then I went to joints, and then... Uh, when I was working hard for Brian for uh, doing the, the Rocco matches, I was disheartened by the money that he was paying me. I won't say how much it was, but I knew how much Rocco was getting paid. I knew how much effort I was putting into the match to make Rocco look 500 times better than he was, if I could, you know, right? That was my job, and I'd do anything for Mark in the ring. Anyway, we argued about money and stuff like that. And then it was the same time when Brian was... Um, anyway... Um, Brian just couldn't wait to get to the show. And they started going like an hour or two early. You know, and we've all got lives at home, right? You know, you don't want to be getting up at 10 in the morning after a London trip and then going away at noon again, right? We want some time at home. Anyway, Brian, for some reason, the, the, at that time, the Liverpool lads never had a car. None of them drove. So they got picked up and dropped off. They got chauffeured everywhere. So I had a car, right? You know, you could hardly afford a car back in those days. And Brian would make me drive 20 miles to the meet. Hey, Brian, I live on your doorstep. Why can't I just meet you around the corner? Well, 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 you know, it's just, you know, it's just the way it is. Anyway, I turned up one time and I'm never, ever late for meets. This day I was three minutes late for the meet and he was gone. No, I didn't, uh, didn't have a cell phone at the time, but I knew Brian had a car phone. So I went to the pay phone in the car park, phoned him, where are you? Oh, I'm only 10 minutes down the road. I, I, I missed you, weren't there. I said, Brian, I got here three minutes after the meet time. Oh, well, you know, well, we'll just, just leave it today. I said, no, you'll come back and get me, A, because I need the money. B, I don't have enough money for petrol back to the house, so you better come back. And he's like humming and hawing. He was like, fuck's sakes, fuck's sakes on the phone. And then he came back in the car park and he had that big, uh, <laughs> I don't forget this, the big Citroen. Big Citroen, yeah. yeah. Right. The big clitoris, I call it. Right? And Brookside <laughs> and Doc's in the back laughing, go, hey, hey, all right, all right. I say, that's all right for you, yeah. You got picked up and dropped off and all that. So Brian's arguing me through the window. And that's it. I just flipped. I, I, uh, some people have a short fuse. I don't have a fuse. I'm either fucking switched on or I'm off. Right then, I was off. But then Brian said something to me that just fucking clicked me. I said, "Get out the fucking car. Get out the car now." He wouldn't get out. So I pulled his door open and I bent it right round till it touched the wing in the front of the car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, needless to say, I got fired on the spot. Brookside lent me a fiver to get petrol for on the way home, and that was me out of work. I had to go home and say to my wife. Um, I'm not wrestling anymore. I got fired for hitting the boss and uh, slapping the ball. I slapped Brian twice, slapped him. Couldn't punch him, I slapped him. He had just got his teeth all fucking realigned that day and all these nice veneers and all that. <laughs> uh, a month after that, uh, oh, that was another thing he didn't like because I said, okay, uh, this this is an, a poignant moment in the business. <laughs> I was the last person ever to get a date sheet after that because I held him to, I had a full date sheet. It was only the beginning of the month. At 26 jobs, and I said, Brian, you got to pay me for these jobs. No, 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 not at all, not at all. I said, oh, yes, you do. I said, I've been to a lawyer, contract employment law. And sure enough, the date sheets were 
consider a form of contract in Brenner to pay me cash for all those jobs. Ever since that day, everybody got their dates written on a, like an empty sweet packet or a cigarette packet and stuff like that. To this day, nobody gets a date sheet off them. <laughs> So yeah, I was out for a month and uh, we made up, we kissed and made up and I came back and he gave me the raise I'd been asking and I changed my outfit, check up my haircut. Thought, so, okay, a new start, a fresh start and everything went from there. Everything was okay after that. And then um, I got tied down with work a lot, so I wasn't resting a lot for a while. And then uh, I came back and in the end, I started uh, running Brian's business for him. I was like managing backstage and I was like the booker. And that's when we. It was he was finding it hard to... Um, to go from old school to new school, he couldn't. He couldn't quite find the link. He couldn't quite find the the value in the new school. And the Stoke lads had just come on board at the time, and they were fantastic. They were a breath of fresh air. They were an injection into his business. And um, I, I, I saw. I could see. I see Brian. I called it fusion wrestling. I could see the fusion wrestling, the old school, the new school. Um, let me work on it, if you will. I said, I'm not asking you for anything, but I said. So he said, I'll tell you what we do. If you stop wrestling and just do that solely, run the shows. And, and that's what I did. I did that for about four years and, until Letitia was getting upset that I used to, Dean used to get knocked off every night, usually by big, big guys, right? He was wondering why he wasn't pinning the guy at 30 stone or, you know, Grizzly, like a cannonball Grizzly. She was, she was wondering why he wasn't pinning him. You know, I said, well, he weighs 11 stone and he weighs 35 stone. That's got something to do with it. And it became a bit like that, where uh, Letitia was a bit humped that she wasn't in control of the dad's business, and I was taking control for Brian behind the scenes, and he was paying me what was the best money ever paid me, by the way. And we were became really good friends at the time. Everything was going great. We'd see each other out. We actually owned a racehorse together, me and Brian Dixon. We were shares at a syndicate and a racehorse. Really? Yeah. What, was it, what was it called? She was called Goldust Woman, because the guy that got us into it, he had a Fleetwood Mac tribute band. Right. And we paid into this, and uh, we all went to Haydock one day with the owner's enclosure with the badges on, owner and all this, and here she comes for her first race, off she goes. Well, all the, the gates open and all these horses run. Ours was still in the gate looking around, going, what the fuck do I do now? <laughs> we all looked at each other, oh my God, there's a lot of money down the drain. Uh, it, she raced three, four times after that, but it wasn't any good. We had a top trainer, a top jockey, but um, the horse was the shits. But it was a fun. It was good fun. So not many people know that me and Brian Dixon own the racehorse. You know. <laughs> do you reckon? Yeah. Uh, do you reckon Brian Dixon's a millionaire? Yes, I do. Yeah. If not uh, close, because um, I, I saw the house they bought for um, his daughter when they got married in a very affluent area, a very big house, and he wouldn't have got change of maybe half a million pounds. So you mentioned it earlier, some of the younger lads that were coming through. Who were some that you were impressed with? Who were some that you were not so impressed with? Uh, well, uh, all of the Stoke lads were impressive. Uh, <laughs> they were uh, um, Robbie Dynamite. I, cha I changed his name to Robbie the Bloody Dynamite. Kid Cool, Dean Allmark, um, Whippy. All those guys were good, right? They really were good. And they were almost self-taught. They just like They were amazing, just... Just, just what they did, right? It was good. Um, guys that I wasn't impressed with, um, new guys who came around then. Oh, kid called Pete Bainbridge. Oh, I've seen, I've heard the name. Yeah, I've heard the name, but yeah, um, there was some guy uh, Harvey. He was a fire eater, John Harvey. Oh, I've heard, yeah, again, I've heard the name, but I've never, I've never seen him. Who even give them a job in the ring? 
Now I know he you're. Full circle, Finlay pressed him above his head and throwing him out the out the dressing room, and then his bag would follow. He just stopped coming around. <laughs> I know your favourite wrestler is Jody Fleisch. Oh, but he's not my favourite. But um, I just feel it's uh, it's uh, it's so sad that that guy hasn't been recognised and snapped up for what he is. Yeah. He is an amazing talent. He's very humble. He's a polite guy. He's very, very. Uh, he's just a nice guy all round. There's nothing you could say wrong with him. How do you think that someone like Jody Fleisch would have fit in 1985 uh, Max Crabtree days? Well, very well, very well. He would have done stuff that some of them weren't even doing. He would have been the I call that flip flop and fly type wrestling. He would have been the first on television to like do flip flop and fly, right? It'd have been unseen before, and it was good stuff. Anyway, get up. My dog's trying to eat my lizard worm. Sorry. That's <laughs> all right. What about the because the, the the massive difference that I felt towards the end from when I start I started in '91, which mm-hmm. was the kind of back end of the world of sport guys. So yeah. kind of your age group. I was in the change rooms with Marty and yeah. Stacks and Skull and everything. And yeah. they scared the shit out of me. And a lot of the guys that I meet, uh, you know, 10 years ago would never have survived the changing rooms. What's the difference? Yeah. I don't know. What I'm I, tr- guess- I, don't, I, I don't know what the question is, but do you see what do you, do you see what I'm trying yeah, to get yeah. at? I, I think I know what you're getting. I, I guess they wouldn't have grasped the, the etiquette back then. There was a lot of respect back then. And it was like, uh, you'd know your place. You, you'd know you know your lane, right? And if you step out, then you're considered too big for your boots and somebody will sort you out. But then you were, uh, there come a point where you've been around that long and if your face fits, you're like, hey, how's it going? You're, you're all pals then, right? Like Skull, I've been pals with Skull since I first started the business, Steve Young, or Peter Nordy is his real name because his dad was very helpful to me. And I've seen him change his persona throughout the years, but I've seen him being very nasty with newcomers that come in the dressing room. You know, they kind of talk to him like uh, they've known him all their lives. And, and that's what the guys used to do. They'd cut you right off. Sorry, who are you? Do you know me? Yeah, well, you know. In other words, speak when you're spoken to or until you're invited to do otherwise, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty tough, yeah. And especially when I got in the ring, there was a... I wouldn't say it was a click back then. It was a, There was a group of... Like, you think of Finlay and Skull against Marty and, say, Regal, for example, or Marty and Danny... That was one hell of a main event tag match, right? And guys, some of the guys couldn't even touch them for talent and skill and, and anything else. So they did have something to look up to. They did have something to aspire to, right? But And if they weren't quite there yet, then they used to keep their mouth shut and make sure you get up there, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a lot of missing. What about wrestling these days? What do you think has... Um... Do you like it? Do you not like it? Do you think, obviously, the athleticism is there, but to me, it's lost the, um, I don't know, it's, 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 it's so different to what I grew up watching. What do you think to it? There's one word that will describe everything we're talking about, is kayfabe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. K-fabe Realism, yeah. Kayfabe is gone. Um, dyslexic wrestling, I call it. So they know what they want to do. They've worked out. Well, here's the other thing. I think Tatanka was the first one to do this. They come in, they sort out your match, and they'll take three hours to discuss a 10-minute match. Yeah. Okay. You've given me so much shit that I forgot what you're even talking about. I've even forgot who I'm wrestling. Never mind remember all this stuff you gave me. Kids nowadays, they don't know how to ad-lib a match. With the best intention in the world, you might go in there with a plan A. You might even be somebody who has a plan B. But it all goes out the window now because the response from the crowd 
and the atmosphere changes everything. And that happened a lot back in our day. So quite often we would just work a, a couple of spots and a finish. The rest was ad-libbed. They can't do that anymore. They have to discuss every little detail. So hence for the, the wrestling itself, the actual match looks organized. It looks rigged. It looks like it's been planned. It looks like it's been meticulously laid out, almost like clockwork, tick-tock, tick-tock. And that's how they wrestled. There's no meaning. There's no uh, feeling. There's no um, very little timing at times. It goes actually into what they did, why they did it, and at which part of the match they did it. And it's something that I coach into them. Here's what we do, here's why we do it, and here's when we do it, most importantly. There's no point in you doing a backflip off the top if it's the wrong time of the match, if it's the wrong time in the atmosphere of the crowd, you're wasting your time. And if you do five of those, they might not even remember one of them. But if you do one at the right time, and for perfectly good reason, that's what they'll go home talking about. And that's what I try and coach any people today. I try and get my, my trainees to ad-lib a lot of the stuff. Here's an exercise I do for them, just for to give you an example. Got a couple of guys, and uh, I'll say, how long have you been wrestling? Well, five years. Oh, you should know. So like, oh, yeah, I'm okay. I've worked with a lot of guys. Okay, good. You let them talk themselves up, right? Say, another kid, how long have you been wrestling? Well, four years. You know, I work with him a lot. Now. Okay, like, here's what we'll do then. I'm going to put you in the ring. I'm going to start the watch. We'll start off, say, John and Dave. John will be the heel. John, I want you to heal on that kid constantly until you run out of idea, until I see you've run out of ideas, or what I see you've duplicated is something you've done. And let's see how much you really know. So, ding, ding, away they go. 15 seconds later. Um, 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 that's it. So, I'd switch it, and the other guy would do the same. 12 seconds, 15 seconds. I say, that's the amount of knowledge you have. When you're asked to go in the ring and do something and create something, your creative limitation is 15 seconds. Instead of you going and saying, yeah, we'll do this and we'll do that. And they've got names for all the moves now, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. What yeah. the fuck are you talking about? So they do all these na- these moves and stuff like that. But they'll do them like in sequence, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. So the, the match just bounces like this. There's no peaks and troughs, right? They just know that that's what they're going to do. And it doesn't matter what's happening at the match at that time. I've got to get my spot in. I've got to get my spots in. I've got to do my triple backflip and land on my head outside the ring or, you know, or, that's what I'm here for. Yeah, okay. And the audience are just sat like that. When I teach them again, I, I try and explain to them, you know, the job is uh, about the audience. It's not about you. You're not in there for self-gratification. Mm-hmm. You're there to entertain those people. And if you don't, they won't come back and you'll be out of work. So here, think about it. I tell them that the job is audiovisual. It's what it looks like and what it sounds like. Not just from the guys that paid on row A, the front row, but the guys that we up in the back of the arena, triple X, who paid the cheap seats, it's got to look and sound right for them too. No thigh slapping. Yeah, oh God, yeah, don't, don't, <laughs> Jesus. Disease, Good slapping. God. Even, they even slap their thighs on bloody punches now. It's re- absolutely ridiculous. I saw, I saw it. Like, uh, Regal told me that they were actually fining people for doing it. And I thought, well, they must have plenty of money because they're still doing it. <laughs> what is your involvement in wrestling now? I'm a coach um, here in Calgary. We have the uh, the Workhorse Fitness Performance Centre. It's a huge, uh, it's, it's actually a big gym, uh, you know, weight training gym, bodybuilding gym and so on. And the section in it is uh, where there's two wrestling rings. Uh, it's all on my Facebook if anyone wants to have a look at it. And we are taking overseas students. Um, Lance Storm was the last person to take overseas students here in Calgary with his gym. But, you know, he went, he closed down 
sold up and went to work for the WWE again as a trainer. He's since been released, but his gym's gone, so we're taking that niche in the market back. This would be the biggest gym in Canada, biggest wrestling centre in Canada for sure. Just and on the, just on the footprint alone, the size of the place alone. And there's other trainers apart from you? Yeah, there's a guy called Chris Knight who was Lance Storm's trainer. Uh, Leo Burke, who was one of the best Canadian wrestlers of all time. Very good, yeah. yeah. Uh, Bruce Hart comes along and gives a lot of background on the, the theory and stuff like that, you know, and the timing and the psychology and stuff like that. Yep. So I'm the head trainer there, and uh, we're all kind of singing off the same hymn sheet, and we're on a couple of sessions, then we got closed down with the, the virus. So I was going to say, you, right now, and we can't wait to get going. Are you all COVID uh, in lockdown over there as well? Not as tight as you are in the UK. Um, but it's still, it still is here, and uh, they're talking about the gyms opening uh, by the end of June, we're hoping. Fingers so, crossed. Final question. I sent you this one in advance to have a think about. Obviously, mm-hmm. you've been about since the 1976. You've seen hundreds of wrestlers come and go. Um, yeah. People you think um, were overrated and they made it and you didn't think they would. And people that you saw that were a dead cert, that were going to make millions and uh, kind of disappeared by the wayside. <laughs> that put me in the spot. But as I told you before, you'll get a straight answer. Um, let's start with people who were overrated. So many of them. Crazy Chris Colt. You remember him? He was just a, he was just a total clusterfuck, you know, like in a, in a pair of wrestling boots and, and uh, caused mayhem, you know, and upset Big Daddy at the Albert Hall and stuff like that. So why they bring people like that in, I don't even know. I don't get it. Um, bigger guys who come from the States. Uh, Yasu Fuji was a, a big guy, but not a patch on the other Japanese wrestlers that came. Sammy Lee, Satora, and uh, Koichi Yamada, who turned out to be Jushin Liger. Yep. They were successes for sure, but the bigger guys, not so much. Um, to me, the biggest overrated guy in the business, totally everywhere, and I, I think I've never spoke to him in my life. I've met him twice. Otto Vance. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big fat Tobalard, and all the guys because he was in the office. All the guys used to go and kiss his ass and take big bumps for him and throw themselves around for him. And I, I, I couldn't get it. They even brought him to the Albert Hall, and it didn't mean didn't mean nothing. Didn't mean nothing. A guy that shouldn't be mean anything. But he does, and he's huge in Scotland in particular, this guy called Grado. Yeah. Now, I met I met Graham a few times. That's his name, Graham Stevens. I met him a few times. The first time I met him, Frank, let's be honest here, you don't like me, you don't like what I do, don't you? I said, no, that's not personal. I just, I'm not a fan of comedy wrestling. After the type of wrestling that I did for years, I'm not a fan of comedy wrestling. But I, I do more than that. I said, well, you know, I'm... At that time, they had just put him over Davy Boy Smith Jr. on the, the the New World of Sport thing. And Harry Smith is one hell of a grafter, and for him to take, do a job for Grado, I thought that was kind of sad, you know. Anyway, so we spoke, and I, I was honest with him. And then I watched him work that night. And, you know, I bet there was maybe 100 people in this little scout hall in, in Livingston near Edinburgh. And that guy worked his ass off. He was in there for about 40 minutes. 20 of that was his match. The rest was just working the crowd at the beginning and working them again at the end. And he came out and I said, what do you think of that? I said, I'm going to shake your hand and say, you've changed my mind. I said, that's the hardest I've seen anybody work in a long, long time. Okay, you're not a bump monkey. You're not a flip-flopping fly merchant. But what you do 
is effective and I said your timing is impeccable and your rapport with the crowd is second to none yeah. it's something that people money can't buy and yeah yeah so he's one and he does a lot of television stuff now so good luck he does. yeah he's doing well yeah he's doing well he's, he's different he's different as well he's he's, yeah. he's about the most successful person I've seen come along in the last few years that's kind of yeah. broken out of wrestling he's doing a lot more than wrestling now so yeah, yeah. he's an actually yeah. funny guy actually and I get on well with him now yeah, he is. I, I met him up at um, my local. He was doing a local show, and I went along to see a few of the guys. And I ended up sat and talking to him for like three hours. And I thought, right, God, I thought, Jesus, what a nice guy. So, Mr. Frank Chick Collin slash Robbie Stewart, as he was known in Canada. Uh, great interview. Uh, we'll catch up with Frank again in the future. Uh, now living in Canada, uh, been there a few years now, and I'm sure he said in the summertime it's really nice and warm. Uh, the rest of the year, it's absolutely freezing, freezing cold. Uh, but he's still in contact uh, with most of the old Stampede crew. Uh, and I think uh, Frank's a great example of when you're involved with wrestling, uh, despite now being 60 years old, you never quite get out of it. No, absolutely not. And um, Frank has been going 40 plus years within the industry. He's got a great life in Canada. He's a credit to British wrestling and a great. Absolutely. Yeah, he is. Right, that's just about all from us then. So uh, we'll be back in a week's time with another guest and more nonsense from me and Youngie. We will speak to you all again next week. Thanks for listening. Have a good week till next week. Be seeing you. Seeing you.